today we kick off a sermon series about the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount occurs relatively early in Jesus's ministry. He was baptized, tempted, and then sent off to call the first of his disciples with the well-known line, follow me and I will make you fish for people. All throughout Galilee, Jesus preached the good news and provided healing for the hurting masses. And as word spread of his healings, crowds began to form. We hear this a lot about Jesus, that he was followed by a great big crowd. Do you remember those children's books by Richard Scarry? There's one called, What Do People Do All Day? Where little animal people build houses, sail ships, grow food, fight fires. They are bakers and librarians and teachers and traffic cops. And I hope I'm not alone in this, but when I picture the crowds following Jesus, I think sometimes I picture something like a Richard Scary book. All the cute little bakers and candlestick makers from Galilee, Jerusalem, and Judea packing up their bags to follow this itinerant preacher. But we get a different story from Matthew 4. It says, So Jesus' fame spread all throughout Syria, and they brought to him the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he cured them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Now, I'm sure that some of the crowd was indeed made up of bakers and candlestick makers, but the crowd following Jesus was also made up of the hopeless, the afflicted, the disabled, the invisible. These were people for whom Jesus was their last hope at healing and restoration into community. And it's to this crowd and the newly minted disciples that Jesus delivers the Sermon on the Mount. It's noteworthy that he opens with the text that we read for today, the Beatitudes, the blessings. Before diving into topics like prayer, anger, anxiety, even the golden rule, Jesus pours out blessings upon the gathered masses. Have you ever read the Beatitudes like a checklist? Do you hear this litany of blessings and think to yourself, Ugh, I need to work on being more merciful, more peaceful. Or have you ever read the Beatitudes like a yardstick, wondering if you measure up? Is my heart pure enough? Do I hunger and thirst for justice, for righteousness enough? There's something to be said for hearing God's word and responding in kind, but right now, right off the bat, it's important to say this. We are very, very gifted at counting our faults. We are very, very gifted at going through the world and finding checklists and yardsticks with which to evaluate ourselves. It is far harder to accept God's grace. Friends, the Beatitudes are not a checklist. They're not a yardstick. They are rather a radical proclamation by God incarnate that in God's kingdom, the vulnerable people are lifted up the forgotten people are remembered. The marginalized and the outcast are given a seat at the table. The unlovable are showered in love. And this is a grace precisely because our natural human inclination 
is to doubt our belovedness and the belovedness of our neighbors and question the breadth and depth and height of God's grace. During this sermon series, the Wednesday Bible study group is reading a book by Professor Amy Jill Levine. She writes, we leave the Beatitudes with the phrase, blessed are, ringing in our ears. We could attempt to recite all nine, but perhaps a better exercise is to continue the pattern and develop our own. Friends, as you are in this moment, you are blessed. Blessed are the worn out caregivers. Blessed are the forgotten and the forgetful. Blessed are the impatient and the guilty and the shameful. Blessed are those who have little to offer. Blessed are the parents who've lost babies. Blessed are the angsty teenagers. Blessed are the unemployed, the unimpressive, the underrepresented. Blessed are the shy and the outspoken, the weak and those who have to be too strong. Blessed are you. You are of heaven and Jesus blesses you. There's a famous theologian named Karl Barth who talks a lot about grace. He says that God pours grace upon us. Grace that is so undeserved and extravagant that we have no choice but to feel gratitude. And this gratitude shapes our whole lives. It shapes the way that we conduct our lives. Our lives become our grateful response to God's grace. And this is the theological bridge that makes the following seemingly contradictory statement possible. As an act of God's extravagant grace, Jesus blesses you exactly as you are. And in doing so, he invites you as your grateful response into something new or different. And so, blessed ones, with that we narrow our focus to just one beatitude in particular, the third beatitude, one that feels wonderfully lofty given our country's current sociopolitical climate. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now I'll confess that until fairly recently, this has been my least favorite beatitude, and I suspect others in this congregation feel similarly. It can evoke images of excessive submissiveness, spinelessness, weakness, and unwillingness to express one's opinions. Historically, this beatitude has been used by a decidedly powerful group to silence less powerful groups. Women, enslaved people, protesters, they've all been lectured about the virtues of meekness. The word has also been weaponized against men. It seems to run counter to traditional ideas of masculinity, like toughness, strength, and boldness. But when meekness is reduced to spinelessness or weakness, we're really missing the point. Meekness does not equal powerlessness. Quite the opposite. A meek person makes the choice to be meek. They choose to set aside their personal power, ego, or influence and humble themselves for the sake of another. A meek person makes a choice to live a non-exploitive life. Or to quote Amy Jill Levine, a meek person is a person with great authority, but one who does not lord it over others. Synonyms might include humble or gentle. There's a story from my time as a chaplain that I think of often. 
This is really a story about the gentleness of a team of nurses, but first, let me tell you about the patient. His name was Angel, and he was um, born with a heart defect to immigrant parents. His heart was enlarged. It was literally too big. And he received treatment over the course of his whole life until at the age of 23, a cardiac event landed him in the hospital. That's where I met Angel and the nurses and the doctors met Angel. While at the hospital, his condition rapidly deteriorated until tearfully his medical team advised his family to say their goodbyes. The next morning, Angel's sister explained that their family and friends from Puerto Rico would be flying in to say goodbye and friends from school would be driving up and teammates from his youth baseball team were already on their way. This was to be a homegoing party for Angel. So somber and mournful, but coursing with love. And hearing this, the nurses sprang into action. Using the influence, the power that they had as employees of the hospital, they petitioned hospital administrators to allow them to create something truly special for Angel's family and friends. While siblings and aunts and uncles and teammates embarked on the hard work of grief and saying goodbye, the nursing team gently and quietly transformed his hospital room into a sacred and holy space. They moved quietly and humbly, filling his room with flickering battery-operated candles and softly glowing lamps. They brought in a computer and speakers to play his favorite music. They organized the hospital kitchen to prepare food for a crowd. There were posters on the walls and full boxes of tissues on the table. This was not in their job description. But these nurses saw a raw and tender corner of this world. And in response, they acted with servant leadership, powerful gentleness, a poignant meekness. Another story. My sister and I are very close in age. It's a tremendous gift now. We get along great. But when we were literal, our closeness meant that we frequently wanted whatever the other was playing with. We would fight and the fighting got louder and louder, rising from the back seat of the minivan or down the hall or through an open window. We could count on my mom doing one thing. She would come over to us, interrupting our chaos and loudness with a whisper. What's going on, guys? We would respond with loud accusations. Lottie took my toy. Riley won't stop poking me. But her voice would get soft until we had to settle ourselves just to hear her speak. We'll get this figured out, but first let's all take a deep breath. My mom, the one with the power, chose softness, gentleness, meekness in the face of our loudness and harshness. In those moments, her strength was in a gentle whisper. And another story. As Advent fast approaches, we'll soon embark on yet another holy repetition. We'll hear anew and all over again the story of love incarnate, hope incarnate, peace incarnate, God incarnate, God who is powerful and mighty, God who spoke this very planet into existence, God who crafted the cosmos and set the stars in the sky, God who humbled God's self to commune with us as a little baby. 
Christ's whole life is marked by meekness. The powerful made gentle. Just after the Beatitudes in Matthew 11, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And later, during the triumphant entry into Jerusalem, he rides on a donkey to fulfill the prophecies of Isaiah and Zechariah. Tell the daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. Power made gentle. Strength spoken in a whisper. Care given quietly, softly. Friends, what would it look like to live into gentleness, meekness, and humility in this season of our lives together? Perhaps it means that in God's grace and with Christ's blessing, we're called to treat ourselves with more gentleness, moving more slowly, taking time to rest, acknowledging that we are indeed beloved by God. Perhaps it means that in God's grace and with Christ's blessing, we're called to sit at the feet of those in our lives who are masters in gentleness, meekness, and humility. And perhaps it means that in God's grace, and with Christ's blessing, we are empowered to lower ourselves and to keep our eyes peeled for the tender places in need of gentle care. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are you. Amen.